Episode of Hitting Paydirt by Impact Sports. This is episode number 42, and I'm Alex Podry. And then with me today, I have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Evan Burke. How are you doing, Evan? Alex, I'm doing great today. Thank you for having me on and, and looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, well, I appreciate your time. So Evan is a uh, speaker, uh, former NFL coach, and is in, hosts his own podcast, Highest Level. Uh, he uses his sports world as his backdrop to engage audience audiences with uh, thought-provoking lessons of leadership, team building, and creating championship cultures. Um, and you also have a book coming out, is that right? Yes, thank, thank you for mentioning that, Alex. I just published last month and it's called Finding Intangibles. That's awesome. So uh, I'll let you do a 30 second commercial here and we'll get this out of the way first. What's, uh, what's the book about? Um, obviously intangibles, but how does that relate to your audience? Who are you trying to reach? Um, your kind of 30 second elevator pitch here. Yeah, sure thing. I thought we were going to build up to that, but I'm ready for <laughs> well, it right now. I'm going to go right now. <laughs> uh, so, so the book is really through my lens as a former NFL and college coach. And, and it's really about, uh, number one, how important character is to, uh, driving the elite performers and the championship teams that, that I studied, competed against and worked with. Uh, and then also kind of breaking down, how do you find these unseen traits, these intangible characteristics that end up dictating the success of individuals and teams? Uh, and I kind of break it down all the way, you know, to a very scientific process to like what the intangibles are and, and how you need to pick the right people and not the best people. Uh, and so we can dig into that later, but, uh, it, it's really a book for anybody that's in a high performance business or that works with building a performance driven team. That's awesome. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bury the lead. We'll kick off with that. Now let's go kind of back to the beginning. Um, how did you get into sports? Like, you know, what were you like in high school? What'd you go to college for? Like, let's lay out the path that led you to being an author and a public speaker and NFL coach and all of those things. So how'd you get there? Sure thing. I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and at the time that I was growing up and becoming sports conscious, the Dallas Cowboys were actually a good football team back then, uh, winning championships and, you know, uh, Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, this was the team of my childhood. And so obviously growing up in Texas, t football was extremely important. Uh, and I was always involved in sports. So from a young age, variety of sports, just like a lot of uh, young men and women are, and kind of didn't have any type of discrimination. Baseball, basketball, soccer. Uh, and then as I grew older, football and wrestling were my two sports in high school. And when I went to college at the University of Colorado, uh, I, I was not talented enough to be recruited to, to compete athletically in college. I went to University of Colorado as a student and uh, after my freshman year just kind of felt like I was missing something. And I think a lot of it was being involved in sports my whole life and having that constant competition and the camaraderie of being on a team. And, and I missed a lot of that. And I also was kind of on a, a leadership development path in terms of my own leadership and in terms of trying to identify what I wanted to do. And at the time I was studying business management and there was a similar uh, parallel to, to being a coach, 
And so that kind of led me to, while I was a student at the University of Colorado, to begin youth sports coaching. So coached a variety of teams, basketball, soccer, baseball. Eventually that led me to coaching fourth grade football, which was my first coaching experience. Uh, and I also coached at a local high school after that uh, in Boulder while I was still a student. Um, so kind of began my coaching career while I was studying, uh, but also preparing as well to kind of go down this coaching path. So um, I coached youth sports for 10 years. I coached at the high school girls basketball level. So I have a, a little bit of understanding of what you went through there. Um, you, as you go through that and you start coaching youth sports, how did you end up at SMU? And how did you end up as a grad assistant? Because it feels like from an outsider's perspective, not having been a grad assistant, it feels like a lot of those grad assistants are former players. Like, hey, we'll, we'll do you a solid. Uh, thanks for your four years here. And okay, you wanted to get into coaching, we'll let you be a grad assistant. It seems like you didn't follow that path. So how did you get into SMU and, and what were your four, like, four years like there? And you're 100% correct, Alex. I mean, you know, the, the typical path of a football coach is you're a former player, whether in college or in, in the professional ranks, and you have a built-in network just through your playing days of coaches that you know, or you are the son of an NFL executive or a coach, or you are in this family tree of coaches uh, that you can just tap into this network that has kind of been pre-made for you by your father in most cases. Uh, and, and so, like you mentioned, I have a very uh, unconventional path and unique in the sense that I started coaching fourth grade football and then, uh, you know, coached at a local high school. And when I graduated, I, I wanted to coach in college. And of course I knew nobody. Uh, and I went to the coach at the local high school that I was at, whose dad is, is a legend, uh, at the, at, at the university of Colorado. And I kind of went to him and I said, Hey, I know you have connections. I know you used to be a college coach and I want to be a college college coach uh, and told me exactly what you just told me, Evan, those jobs go to former players. You're not a former player. You have no name recognition. Like, how are you going to get in? Uh, and as often times, and I, I'm, this is not unique to me, but I think a lot of times like people get told certain things and if your vision is strong enough, it just almost, kind of gives you a certain resolve to say, oh, well, that person's wrong because they don't really know what I'm about. But if that's the way that they're going to uh, bucket me, uh, then that's fine. I know you're not on my team and I'm going to go on my way and find my own path. And, and of course, that's what I had to do. Like the people I was connected with either weren't willing to make the introduction for me or didn't see it within me. So I had to kind of start hustling and, and create my own network and wrote letters to every division one school in, in America. Uh, nobody responded to me. I am from the, from Dallas, as I mentioned, and I was coming back, uh, to Dallas. Uh, I was living in Boulder at the time and called the three schools here in Dallas. I called TCU, North Texas and SMU said that I sent them a letter the month before, and I'm going to be in Dallas next week. And I want to come by and, and meet them. Uh, and the coaches at North Texas and TCU told me not to waste my time, that don't not to come up to their offices and that they didn't want to hear from me again. They weren't hiring. Uh, and the coach at SMU, Coach Gary Hyatt, said, hey, you know, if you're going to be in town on Thursday, 
I got 20 minutes for you at four o'clock, come by my office. I came by his office and introduced myself. And he basically for 20 minutes told me about this volunteer position that they hire for every year. Um, that was going to have to be at the office all the time. That was going to have to work the same hours as coaches. That was going to have to pass out Chick-fil-A's and do class checks and monitor study hall and all of these glamorous things that you imagine when you want to be a college coach or, or an NFL coach. Uh, and, and I was like sold in that moment. I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. This is exactly what I want. Oh, well, we're not hiring. And so uh, I said, okay, coach, well, you know, I'll follow up with you. Thanks, you know, thanks for meeting me. And I proceeded to follow up with him every two weeks and just kind of check in. And at the same time, I was kind of hustling, trying to find other jobs. And uh, come about three or four months later, after, again, calling him every two weeks, checking in, like poking him in the shoulder, asking if that volunteer job was still open, uh, he informed me, you know, for the, 10th time that no, they were still focusing on other things. And I had two job offers, uh, one at a local high school and, and one at Colorado School of Mines, which was a volunteer GA job. And I just said, Hey, Coach Hyatt, you're, you're the only Division One coach I've ever spoken to. I have these two job offers and I want to be a college coach. Which one would you recommend me taking? And he said, Hey, if you want to be a college coach, go coach in college. And I said, Coach, that's awesome. You've been so kind to me and I, I really appreciate it. And I'll hit up, I'll hit you up next year or something like that. And he goes, why don't you come by my office next time you're in Dallas? I, I show up in Dallas three weeks later. I show up at coach Hyatt's office. In the meantime, I've taken the volunteer job at Colorado school of mines. Uh, and I show up at coach Hyatt's office and he walks me into the head coach's office and they proceed to tell me what goes on here stays here. Like you don't tell anybody about what you see here. You're expected to be here morning, noon and night. Uh, and of course, I'm just like, what are you guys talking about? What, like, what's happening? Uh, Coach Hyatt's like, we're hiring you. What do you mean? This job you won't leave me alone about. We're going to hire you for, for no money. And you're going to be here all the time with us. Uh, and, and so kind of, which became symbolic of my career. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I would love to tell you right now, Alex, that I had this plan and I knew exactly what was happening, but I had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of like, oh, I have this person that responds to me. I'm just going to keep hitting them up until like I either get an answer one way or the other. Uh, and that ended up working out for me. So as you said, that kind of began my four year journey here at SMU. I think the best kept secret is that nobody knows what they're doing, uh, at least not in the beginning. So, I, I mean, I've, I've, I sold health insurance for seven years out of law school and now I'm jumping into this agency thing full force and, you just figure it out. You know, you take it one day at a time and you do your best and hopefully you got some people that are, that'll help you out along the way. But I think the best kept secret is nobody knows what the hell they're doing. So, um, I have a couple questions on that. Um, one's a little more strategical and one's tactical. So on the strategy side, you mentioned the word resolve. And I think about it in the context of this podcast. I have a Substack channel that I try and write. I, I was really good at writing every day. It's kind of slowed down as life's gotten a little crazy, but uh, when I first started that, I thought this is going to blow up. I'm going to be, you know, monetizing this podcast within weeks. It's going to be an extra source of income. And, and you know, I think you're, you're, you're smiling. I think, you know, where this is going and it, it takes a long time to build these things up. It, people need to trust that you're going to be there day in and day out. You have to have good content, all that stuff. I think about it in the context of, you applying to SMU and correct me if my timeline's wrong, but this is 2006. So the internet's around, but it's not what it was today. And I hear you writing letters to every division one school 
it's not it's probably not easy to not hear back from a hundred plus division one schools um so i'd be curious to get your thoughts on what did keep you going was there a time where you thought you know what this is impossible or were you just kind of like this is going to work one way or another and just keep the course i'd be i'd be curious to get your thoughts on that first off i'd love to get your Substack uh uh link when we finish here i'd love to see what you're writing about and the reason I was smiling is because I've fought this battle many times and I'm still fighting it in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I have my own podcasts and uh, now publishing my own book and, and you know how awesome your stuff is. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And it's like, why doesn't everybody think I'm so awesome? Mom says yeah. I'm awesome all the time. <laughs> moms are so, great that way. Moms are great that way. Uh, you, you do bring up an, an interesting point and it was 2006. So like, I, I think YouTube started in Utah in 2006 or something Mm -hmm. like that so it's like right around that time insane when you start to look back and you're like oh wow this is like an integral part of everybody's life on the planet and it was like nothing back then and you know email was kind of like even an interesting uh in in its infancy in a lot of ways so you know the resolve to answer your question I think it's extremely powerful when you have a, as I term it, a North Star that you are going towards. And I think that for me, you know, you asked like how much I doubted myself or where the doubt came in. Uh, like my resolve, as I mentioned, or my North Star to be the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys or the head coach for the University of Colorado was so strong. And I had like such a belief within myself um, for no reason, right? Like <laughs> I had no reason to be that confident, but I just, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And as you mentioned, I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I just had this feeling that like, I want to pursue this path and this is how I want to go. And I think that if I had known how difficult the journey was going to be, I don't know if I would have started it. Like I was choosing an incredibly difficult path, but almost like my ignorance and, and how naive I was and just like, Oh, well, like I'm smart. Like I'll figure it out. Uh, propelled me through a lot of these early challenges that I faced because I was just like very confident in what I was doing. And also I had like a confidence in the process, even though I didn't know what process I was applying. Um, so you, you just kind of spoke about like kind of getting that job at SMU. And, you know, if, if we do get into it and, and it mirrors the way that I got my job in the NFL, even though I didn't know anybody. And even though I had to like... It, implore this like hand handwritten letter writing campaign. So I think that, uh, you know, to answer your question, my North star was so strong that any moments of doubt were always brought back. And I think that's also the power of having like a very strong vision and and clarity in who you are, who you want to become is it like pushes you through the failures or the adversity that you face. But then it also, in another way, like anytime you have success, it almost makes you like double down. So it's like when I got to SMU, I wasn't like, like I was in awe, even though in the grand scheme of things, SMU is not Notre Dame football. It is not Ohio State football. It's not Texas football. But like to me, that's what it was. Like looking at that field, having grown up five minutes from that campus, it was like 
something very special. And my mentality, I, I know this is crazy because all I was doing was passing out Chick-fil-A's that first year. But my mentality was like, oh, this is, this is the foundation for the greatness that lays before me. And like, I literally thought like that. Like, yeah. I'm waiting for a coach to hand me a stack of papers to photocopy so that I can prove to them that I'm reliable. And, and you're the uh, best photocopier out there. I'm the best Chick-fil-A passer-outer right. in the country, and I stand by that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of starting to jump off here on tangents, but no, I, 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 love think it. That, that, I think that North Star drove a lot of any, any early impediment or adversity I faced. I can't recall because my vision for who I was becoming was absolute. That's that's good stuff. I, I, it's just there's so many parallels. I think anytime you start anything new, and I think about <clears throat> like when I became an agent, so I was certified last October, and I just had these grand visions, like there are going to be athletes lining up to talk to me. And then you start reaching out to these athletes who are probably being bombarded by 200 other me's trying to represent them. And, you know, they just don't respond because they don't have to, and they probably don't have time. And you know, all the other things that go into being a high profile athlete. And I just think like, I remember like the first couple of months going like, holy shit, this is going to be much harder than I thought. But like you, I think I've, you know, driven, I want to do this. this is what I want my career to be. And you just kind of keep hammering it. And then eventually a couple stick. And yes, you're right. That's that successful feeling when you kind of carve your own path is even small wins feel phenomenal. So I can totally relate to what you went through there. And can I just jump in here? Cause yeah. like, I think that's really, uh, you know, obviously we had just met and when you were kind of telling me what you were doing and, and kind of like, as we were sharing a moment ago, uh, before we jumped on here, like, I think that's really cool. And obviously I mentioned to you, like, there's so many parallels in my mm -hmm. path is like what you're doing. And like there, uh, somebody told me once, I remember I was talking to a former NFL player, like somebody who had been successful, who has name recognition. Uh, and we were friends and I was kind of like in a moment where I was like, yeah, but like, look at my path. Like, who cares? Like you are this, and this is why people treat you this way and whatever we were talking about. I was, but I was basically outlining like, oh, look, you have like everything handed to you on a pedestal. And I remember it was like a really profound moment for me because he was like, oh, uh, you don't get it. I played and I retired and like, I fell into this. This is like what I'm, what else am I going to do? Your path is like, you are choosing the most difficult path and like, look at where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, it almost causes you to like, you do get that job as the person who's going to pass out the Chick-fil-A's and that's like a big deal. Uh, and it's like, you know, you were mentioning kind of like the first clients that you had and like, that's a big deal. And it grows deal. from those small seeds, if you will, uh, like, it, you know, you're going to nurture those relationships just like I did. And, and I, I wasn't really having much of an impact per se in 2006 at SMU. Uh, but like the first time you get an opportunity to prove yourself, like, even though you're not calling the game winning play, like that is a small piece, a small win on the path that you're on. So I, I think it's really cool um, what you're doing with this podcast and, and the journey that you're on. So yeah, I, I thank applaud you, you man. I, I didn't mean to jump in there. I just, no, you know. that was perfect. Um, 
one quick story and then I do want to get to my tactical question because I think it's a good <laughs> yes. one that a lot of people will be yes. interested in. Um, but, you know, your story, again, just reminds me, I, I signed Elijah Reed. He was my first client. He's a safety out of South Dakota. And I'll never forget it. Um, in his Instagram, you know, we kind of took some pictures and I made an announcement, all that stuff. And on it, he said, you know, thank you for Alex and Impact Sports for believing in me and taking a chance on me. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, thank you for the note. That was very kind of you. But, you know, thank you for taking a chance on me. It's probably not easy as a player taking a first year agent. And, you know, these guys have worked for 20 years to get to this point. Uh, so to trust their livelihood in my hands, it's not, I don't take it lightly. So um, I think, you know, there's always those two sides to the perspective. And I think you, you laid that out great. My tactical question. So you reached out every two weeks. How did you do that without being a pain in his ass? Or were you a pain in his ass and just didn't care? Like, th there's, there's got to be some tact to reaching out every couple of weeks without just being a pest. So I, I'd be curious as to what that looked like. So I think, first of all, I just want to, like, point out, number one, that you have to be self-aware. Um, uh, very similar to, like, we're sharing the parallels in our stories. And, like, whatever you're doing in 20 years, you're going to look back on, like, your relationship on Elijah with Elijah Reed. And you're going to be like, Oh, well it started very simple, but like mm -hmm. I'm doing the exact same thing today. Um, and like, same thing for me, it was kind of like, I was aware that I wasn't this big name and that I didn't have any recognition. So like, what was I going to do to set myself apart? Um, and, and you asked about the tactical aspect. And so like the self-awareness is like, I'm going to be genuine to who I am. Uh, I'm not a former player. Like I'm not the typical person. So I'm just going to lean into my authenticity. And I was very, uh, this is a strength and also potentially a weakness. Like I will spend 30 minutes crafting an email or writing a letter because I'm very purposeful about how I want to present myself and how I want to present whatever it is, whether I'm asking for something or whether I'm just making a touch point with somebody, like I've spent 20 to 30 minutes crafting four to five line emails. And, and like specific to your question, I was very intentional about reaching out to Coach Hyatt uh, in, you know, 2006, like the SMU football staff was like 10 coaches and maybe like two GAs and like three supporting members in ops. Okay. Now, like SMU probably has 30 people on their football staff, right? Like it's drastically changed. But at that time, uh, like I just remember thinking, okay, I don't know anybody in division one football. This is the only person who's even like acknowledged that I exist. So I'm going to like nurture this little seedling and just try and like feed it consistently, but yet not be pushy. So the way I did this was I would like call coach Hyatt on his office phone on the phone. If you can believe it, millennials. <laughs> uh, and like, I would call him and you know, Hey coach Hyatt, this is coach. This is Evan Burke. Uh, I am from Boulder. I met with you a month ago. Yeah. Evan, I remember like, yeah. uh, you know, you're the only kid from Boulder I've inter you know, talked to in the last decade of my life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to bother you, but you know, you mentioned that volunteer opportunity when we met and I was just curious, have you filled that role? So like my question was never about like, are you ready to hire me? 
it was literally I was doing it in a very like indirect way. Like, oh yeah, I just wanted to check in with you and just see like, have you filled that volunteer role yet? And it was always, oh, Evan, we're focused on spring football. Oh, we're focused on pro day. Oh, we're focused on spring recruit. It was always something. Mm-hmm. And so I was very like intentional about not asking, but at the same time, as I like to phrase it to people, I'm poking that person in the shoulder and just letting them know I'm here, why I'm reaching out and just, oh, that's totally fine, Alex. I totally understand you're so busy. Uh, but kind of, I'm sure after you know three or four phone calls, Coach Hyatt probably knew that, oh, this guy's probably gonna hit me up in two weeks. And so I think when I did call, and this was not premeditated, I was genuinely calling him because I had these two job offers. I'd kind of put it to myself like, okay, this is one last opportunity to call SMU. When I called him and he gave me another excuse about, oh, Evan, we've got so many um, sweatshirts on back order. We're not even thinking about hiring this volunteer position. It was literally like, okay, Coach Hyatt, like genuinely, you're the only Division One coach I know. And like, please give me your advice. Uh, so of course, right? Like if you have options, you all of a sudden become like very desirable. And if you <laughs> have no options, it's like, you know, what, like, why is nobody, why is nobody talking to you? Like, I don't want to talk to you if nobody's talking to you. It's, it's right. a lot like dating, but that would be for <laughs> It's a lot podcast. like dating, yes. It's a lot like dating. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you were asking about the tactical aspect and I was like very specific that I was like, I was very confident in what I was asking, but I was also not asking if he was ready to hire me. I was just inquiring about that opportunity that he had told me about. And I'm sure at the time he had nobody else reaching out to him every two weeks, like trying to get in the door for this volunteer opportunity. So the first year at SMU, SMU, you're passing out Chick-fil-A and making photocopies. What does year two look like? So interesting side note, I ruptured my appendix the Ooh. first after the first game of the season. Uh, and because of a fluke situation, uh, I went into the training room the next day. They said that I was probably dehydrated because our game was at Lubbock. Um, and then basically I was just being treated for uh, muscle dehydration or something like that for the whole week. Uh, and I was in excruciating pain. Uh, and so I'll spare everybody the details, but like that ended up being a long stay in the hospital and kind of like disrupted my first year. But year two was uh, an advancement into the video grad assistant role. So, you know, within these college football programs, it doesn't really matter what your title is. It's more like, what are you doing? Uh, and I think that's what I'm more focused on. Yeah, I would like video practice. I was a video GA in title, but all my time was spent with the offensive staff, working with them, drawing up blocking schemes for the offensive line coach, sitting in the quarterback meetings, taking notes on those meetings. So uh, like, even though in title I was advancing and, and being involved with the, the video department, I also was involved in recruiting and offense and um, you know, the, the next year, and I'm sure you were about to ask this, but like year three, I was a defensive grad assistant year four. I was an offensive grad assistant or excuse me, vice versa, offensive grad assistant in 2008 defense in 2009. So by the end of my time at SMU, I had had a significant time at, in every facet of the program. And I think you could ask anybody that was on that coaching staff in 2009, like there was not much that happened within that building 
without me being involved. And that's not to say that I was like the most important piece, but like with the coaching staff of 55 year olds, like they don't know how to turn on the projector. They don't know how to put the, put the, at the time DVDs onto (laughs) the screen. Um, You know, they don't uh, do anything that has to do with the recruiting weekend without having me there. So I was heavily involved in every aspect of that organization by the time that I left. And, and obviously something I was really proud of. We had a lot of success. I got to learn from a lot of great coaches Um, and and oftentimes in life, like, yeah, results are great, but also like having a little bit of significance goes a long way. You also survived a coaching change, correct? Yes. Um, so, you know, for those that may, maybe aren't familiar with sports or, you know, football in general, a lot of times when the head coach gets fired, everybody gets fired. And, uh, that can sometimes include even folks like yourself. So I'd be curious, uh, you've, you did coaching and we'll get into the pros and, and other college stuff in a moment here, but talk about that. That had to be a scary feeling. You worked so hard to get here. And then all of a sudden you have a new boss and you probably didn't know if you were going to be sticking around for much longer. Yeah. Very astute of you, Alex. And you're hundred percent right for, for the audience that doesn't know that's, that's not very common in college athletics or pro athletics. If like, if there's a, if there's a staff change at the top, if there's a coach that gets fired, typically nobody stays on. Uh, and this was a unique situation where SMU was the first team to fire their head coach, uh, you know, maybe in like October and those coaches all knew they were going to get fired. And we were the last team to hire our head coach because we were hiring June Jones, who was at university of Hawaii, who was in the sugar bowl. So they didn't play till whatever June, January 4th. Uh, so there was like two months almost where there was nobody in the coaches offices. It was just me and the ops director and the secretary. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know if it be, was because I was in video, uh, but nobody told me to leave and they kept putting checks in my account. So I didn't say anything to anybody. I just kept showing up every day. And then when the coaches started to show up, I was the one that was like, Hey, Evan, go take coach Jones, you know, drive coach Jones home. Hey, go pick coach Jones up in the morning. Hey, go drive these coaches to Whataburger. Hey, go do the. And so like, again, my whole goal was, yeah, I wanted to be the best Chick-fil-A passer outer in the nation, but I also wanted to provide value to those coaches. So I was doing everything I could to provide value. And then, as you mentioned, like they're getting ingrained at SMU. They're coming from Hawaii that, you know, they don't know the lay of the land. There's obviously people that are higher up than me that can provide that insight. And it's not necessary Uh, But I think like they started to approach spring ball and the day before spring football, they came to me uh, and I had developed a relationship with the running backs coach. And and basically they had promoted me from video to on the field grad assistant working with the offense that first year. So very unusual and very unlikely and come to find out later that they probably had other people set up for that job. But for whatever reason, because those individuals didn't want to leave where they were or just didn't work out they had this opening and I'm there showing up every day, just like trying to be, be a person of value. Uh, and I'm sure it was just kind of like, Oh, well, if so-and-so and so-and-so aren't going to make it like, okay, whatever, just have Evan do it. Like he's doing everything else. Yeah. Um, and like, that's fine. Like all I wanted was that opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, obviously made the most of it. That's fantastic. I think about how easy it would have been to just kind of like, Oh, that sucks. You know, coach got fired and, uh, 
you know, go home and feel sorry for yourself, but you didn't do that. And it's probably why they kept you around. So fast forward to the end of your time at SMU, you jump right into the NFL ranks, which again, probably not typical. Um, talk about that. How did you get hooked up with the dolphins and, and what did that look like? Yeah, well, I'll give you a tactical answer, Alex. Uh, oh, I like tactical asking, answers. Since you were asking earlier. So um knew that I wasn't going back to SMU uh, in the midst of our bowl preparation. So it was the first bowl game that SMU had made since the death penalty in the early 1980s. And uh, obviously a great time to be at SMU, just seeing the evolution of the program and kind of like reaching new heights and, and also seeing them build a foundation for winning. Uh, and a lot of my coaching goes back to that 2008 season, even though we were one in 11, like I learned everything I needed to know about how do you build a winning team? How do you bring people together? How do you turn around a complete losing situation? So it was incredibly impactful. Uh, and in December of that year, I started to turn my eye to the NFL and I was like, okay, I want to give my, my, I want to go, I want to make a run at the NFL. I want to see if I can get a job. Now, I still didn't really know that many people uh, in coaching period, let alone people in my network that had worked at the NFL. Uh, and I didn't really know anybody and I didn't know how to access those jobs. But like I was mentioning before, I wanted to do something that was authentic to me, but that also helped me stand out. Uh, again, I don't have any name recognition. Really, the only name recognition I had was through a connection. So what I did was I made uh, two spreadsheets. One spreadsheet was with the 20, 25 coaches who I'd worked with before, who I knew. And I made a timeline from 1970 to 2009. And I listed out everywhere that they had worked in that time. Then I made a separate spreadsheet with every employee in the NFL. So anybody that was a GM, anybody that was in player personnel, anybody that was a coach, anybody that I could basically find their history online, I made a spreadsheet and a timeline, 1970 to 2009. And when I matched those up together, anywhere that I saw a connection, Coach Smith, who I worked with at SMU, uh, you know, uh, coached with Coach Williams, who's at the Cleveland Browns right now. Well, even if I didn't know if there was a connection or if they were friends or what, I would just write a letter. And, hey, Coach Williams, uh, I work with Coach Smith here at SMU. He says awesome things about you. Uh, like, I'm trying to get in the NFL. I'm going to be at the Senior Bowl in a few weeks. Can we meet for a beer? I'd love to get your advice on getting into the NFL. And I hand wrote all of these letters, and I stapled my business card to, like, the top right-hand corner. I was trying to just, like, separate myself in just one small way where if you open this letter, even if you didn't care who I was or know who I was, you would probably remember that somebody hand wrote you a letter with a stapled business card on it versus the, the form typed cover letter that we all send. Um, and so I ended up writing 450 handwritten letters <laughs> to anybody that like I literally had any type of a link to. I ended up getting 12 responses from those handwritten letters and I qualify a response as anything that like denoted me personally. Uh, anything that was like, Hey, Evan, just got your letter. Thank you. I'll keep you in mind. Like that was a personal response mm -hmm. out of those 12 responses. I ended up, uh, three of those ended up leading to interviews. And one of those ended up, uh, landing me my job with the dolphins. So, uh, a lot of, a lot of tactical, uh, 
authenticity that I was employing kind of like, again, I'm very big into handwritten letters. That was very true to who I was. And, and I was genuinely trying to get in front of these people to, to ask their advice for getting a job in the NFL. Again, kind of like indirectly asking for a job in the NFL, but not doing it like straight out the gate. Yeah. And I think those statistics you just laid out are extremely important, not only for myself, but really anyone. And if your job remotely touches sales, like think about 450 letters, you got 12 responses. That's like a 0.25% hit rate. Um, so, I mean, th that's important to remember because like not everyone you reach out to is going to respond. Actually, in your case, 99.75% of them won't. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned touch the process or you know, keeping in touch with the process, and that is the process, right? You send enough letters, somebody's gotta say yes. In in your case, it was twelve and you got three interviews and, and you got a job. So um so you mentioned the senior bowl. Did you go to the senior bowl that year in Mobile? Yes, I did. And is that where your interviews were, or were you just there to kind of like see who you could shake hands with or you know, what what was that experience like? Another tactical piece I'll highlight here. I went to that senior bowl and, and I apologize. I cannot recall where I saw this. Of course, you know, and now it's, I don't want to think about it, but it's 12, 12, 13 years ago. But I remember I had read something about, it was about networking or something where it was like, if you're going to go to an event, like try and don't just go to an event and meet people, like try and find the people who you, you want to connect with. So I made a top 10 list of people I wanted to get in front of. And we're talking about like the, I mean, these are people, that list would be very recognizable to a lot of people in the audience. If, if you're a, if you're a general football fan. Um, and if you're in, I'm sure you've been Alex, like the senior bowl is like in terms of high level NFL decision makers, it's probably like the biggest hit rate of any place you can be outside the NFL owners meeting, number one. And uh, number two, it's extremely intimidating if you're not in that world. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I definitely felt from like the moment I landed, I was like, oh, wow, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I don't know anybody here. And they're all standing. I felt like it was high school again. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was I was still the uncool kid. But you know, I, I had those 10 people I had highlighted and I ended up meeting eight of those people. And it, like, I'll give you an example. Like, uh, I wanted to meet Matt Russell, who at the time was the director of scouting or player personnel with the Denver Broncos. Uh, and so I had like found him and he was sitting with Brian Sanders, who's the GM and Josh McDaniels, who's the head coach. And so I was at practice. I kind of like saw him sitting watching practice and so i went like 20 rows up and just like sat there and i was like okay matt russell's like a guy i wrote a letter to i want to get in front of him uh and so like as soon as practice ended like everybody stands up and by this time the entire like denver broncos like contingency is like sitting in this like circle surrounding you know the gm and the head coach and i like made a beeline straight down the stairs and then like i like walked down the aisle in front of where like matt russell the gm the head coach were all sitting and i just like walked right up to matt and i said hey matt how are you i'm evan burke uh you know my friend such and such that i coach with at smu and he says awesome things about you and i just wanted to come shake your hand oh uh did you write me 
the handwritten letter with the with the business card? Did you staple your business card to the top right hand? Oh, yep, that's me. <laughs> like, oh, so you got it? Like, I didn't know you didn't reach out to me. <laughs> you know, you didn't follow yeah. up and schedule a meeting. <laughs> um, and so, like, those were the type of things I was doing. And that that meeting, that interaction lasted ninety seconds, right? Uh, and and so, but then it was like, hey. Uh, we're busy doing A, B, and C, but like reach out to me in a couple of weeks and I'll, we'll, we'll meet or we'll have a phone call or whatever. Oh, Hey, thanks. So it's like, I not wasted, but I spent like 45 minutes waiting for practice to end. So I could have that 90 second interaction. I'm walking out of this, out of the practice field just after I had that interaction, uh, with Matt. And I'm walking down the outside of the practice facility. Like, I don't know people. I'm not just going to like hang around like a loser, <laughs> like, like <laughs> standing outside their social circles. So I wanted to like make it appear like I had places to be. So I'm walking outside and I see somebody on my list. He was like the director of pro personnel for the Houston Texans. So like I'm walking down this ramp and I see him walking out of the stadium and I like timed my pace so that I was like mimicking his pace. And I walked right in front of him, like as my, as this ramp I was on spit out into like the main thoroughfare. And I said, oh, hey, um, I'm Evan Burke, you know, so-and-so at SMU. He says awesome things about you. Uh, I wrote you a letter. Oh, you wrote me a letter? Oh yeah, don't worry. I wrote, I wrote it like a month ago. You probably, it probably got lost, whatever, whatever. I was in Dallas, of course, at SMU. He was in Houston. And I said, hey, I'm going to be in Houston next week, so I'd love to come by and, and meet you. You're going to be in Houston next week? Yeah, I'm going to be in Houston next week. My cousin's there, and I got some stuff I got to do. And, like, yeah, I'm totally going to be there. So if you have time, I'd love to come by and see you. Okay, you're really going to be in Houston? Oh, yeah, I'm totally going to be in Houston. Okay, here's my card. Email me on Monday, and if I have time, I'll let you know. Okay, great. So I go back, I email him Monday morning. Hey, hey, Mr. Smith, like, great meeting you. I'm in Houston from noon today till, you know, 8 p.m. Friday afternoon. Uh, let me know if you have free time. He ends up emailing me Wednesday evening at like, or afternoon, like 4.30 in the afternoon. Hey, Evan, I got, I got 15 minutes for you tomorrow at 10 a.m. <laughs> like, can you make it or something like that? Like, oh, yes, sir. I'll be, you know, I'm responding to that email like two minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. I'll be there with my suit on. Uh, so I, I packed up. Uh, I, my cousin actually did live in Houston. Drove down to Houston, which from Dallas is like five hours for those that don't know. Slept on his couch. Got up in the morning. Drove straight to the stadium. Had 15 minutes in front of that, in front of that uh, director of player personnel. Got right back in my car and drove the next five hours to Dallas. Um, so those were the types of things I was doing. And I'm, I apologize to the audience. I'm getting long winded here and, and no, tell, having story time with you. Uh, but those were like the things that I was doing just to put myself in the situation to like have 15 minutes in front of somebody who I didn't know and had no relation to. Um, and, and, you know, eventually, like I said, got an opportunity to interview with the Dolphins and ended up hitting there. Um, but those were the types of things that I was doing in that in, in during that senior bowl that first year. So you interview with the Dolphins, you, you land that job, you were special teams coach. 
what did what did that look like? So now you, I, I'm assuming you're not doing as much video. You're actually hands on coaching a unit. What did that look like? What did that feel like? Um, what was it like transitioning from SMU to now you're you know you're in the NFL? What I guess what was that overall feeling like? Well, I mean, obviously a tremendous sense of accomplishment from getting the job, and you know, we talked earlier about just kind of like the resolve, the resilience. It's not always easy. I'm kind of telling the story like it is like, Oh, this was super easy. Like these were not, it was not easy mentally to like drive down to Houston, have a 15 minute meeting. And then for the guy to be like, okay, cool. Well, like we'll keep you on file. Like that was very challenging to be like, what am I doing? Like, mm -hmm. does any of this matter? Uh, like nobody's going to give me a shot. I'm nobody. And so to like to actually get that job in the NFL was like a huge moment for me. And obviously I, I'm from Dallas. I'm, I, I, I had the opportunity to like share that with my family and my parents, like the, the evening that that happened, but to Miami, like you said, and I'll, and I'll be honest with you, Alex, I got in the door as a video intern. So I oh. started in the video office. So I wasn't quite done with video. Like okay. I was now back in the video office. Um, but I was hustling from the moment I got there. My mentality was still like, I'm going to get in here. I'm going to do exactly what I did at SMU and I'm going to make it work. And uh, ended up, you know, just kind of like behind the scenes, asking people if I could help. Uh, but it was tough because they didn't, they didn't know me. There's no video guys that get to the NFL as a video guy and then are like trying to be a coach. So it was like difficult to explain to people like, no, 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 I'm a coach. I'm trying to be a coach. I, I was at SMU the last four years. Like you can give me anything. And they're like, okay, Aaron, like whatever, like <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Um, but it wasn't until the first week of the preseason, the special teams coordinator at the time had like, you know, of course I'd been in his office, as I told you every two weeks, like, Hey, can I help you with anything? Do you need help? Can I, can I do anything for you? He finally gave me an assignment and you know, that assignment obviously was like the most important thing I've ever done in my life to myself at the time. And then, uh, that completing that assignment and showing that coach that like, Hey, look, you can give me things to do. Uh, and I'll just share, like you asked about like what I was doing, like that coach was like, Hey, um, if you want to help me go watch all of Tampa Bay's punt rushes from last year and draw them up on playmaker pro, which is like the, the computer program that you draw football plays on. And it was like everything that I'd learned at SMU during all my time there, watching all that film, understanding what a stunt looked like, understand what was happening, uh, understanding how to even like use Playmaker Pro, which I had no idea how to use until I got to SMU. It was like that all culminated in that one moment. And I stayed in that office from two o'clock in the afternoon to 1130 at night, drawing up whatever it was, 160, 175 pun rushes from the previous season and then taking it upstairs uh, where, by the way, the special teams coordinator and his assistant were still in their office. Uh, and I handed him the report. And he was like, what's this? I go, oh, so those are the punt rushes you asked for. He's like, from today? Yeah, from today. And he started flipping through it. And he's like, oh, this is awesome. And it was almost like in that moment, he was like, oh, I can give you things to do. And I was like, yes, <laughs> like this is what I've been trying to tell all of you idiots. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, so we started making a list up on the board, like, hey, these are the things you're going to do. And it was like a lot of scouting. It was a lot of like strategy. It was a lot of like watching film and like 
sharing with him what I had seen on film. Uh, and four weeks into the season, so I, I did this for the next eight weeks, right? Like just behind the scenes, nobody knew I was doing this. I was just, do you know, video guys go home at five o'clock, but I'm not built like that. Like I'm here, I'm gonna be the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys in 10 years. Like I'm not here to go home at five. So I was just staying around and like those guys started giving me things to do. So I started staying late with them, but like nobody knew I was doing that. Four weeks into the season, the special teams coordinator gets fired. They elevate the special teams assistant to coordinator. And then like it kind of became known by the head coach and the GM that like, you know, oh, who are we going to get to help? And that special teams coordinator was like, oh, well, there's a guy in the video office, Evan, that's been helping us every night. And they're like, who? Aaron? <laughs> are you talking about Aaron? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, from that moment, um, I got elevated onto the special team staff. And uh, I know you were asking about like kind of the difference. Obviously, like the NFL is very intense. Um, and that's the one word I would use to describe it. And, you know, it's a little different than college. College, you know, you're there, you're developing relationships. You know guys are going to be there for an extended period of time. NFL, people can, people can get cut overnight, right? And yeah. so I don't think there's as, like, as much emphasis on building relationships and, and creating that connection. Um, but it was a tremendous learning experience. And, you know, you're competing against the very best. Uh, and I got to see the insides of a ton of things that I wanted to, to see, right? Like, you know, how do you run a player's meeting? How do you, um, you know, how do you communicate with players at the highest level? What, what is the difference between, you know, the, the pro level and, and the college level? And, uh, you know, what is the preparation? How does that differ? Like, what does that look like? And uh, so that was really interesting to me. And, and obviously, the, the, the lens through through which I view the game. Uh, I, I knew a guy who kicked at Northwestern, and he ended up getting an invite to training camp and ended up, you know, not making it. He said that when he walked into the general manager's office, you know, he gave like a short little 30 second speech. So, you know, thank you for coming. We appreciate your efforts. You know, unfortunately, this is it. And, you know, clean your locker out, whatever. And he said, he said that GM was, I think, sincere. But if I would have walked back into his office 15 minutes later, I don't think he would have remembered who I was. And I think about that a lot <laughs> just because that's just how the NFL works. Like you said, college, you can build relationships. NFL is cutthroat. They start with 90 guys, they get down to 53, and then that 53 will rotate over throughout the year, and it's just constant influx of guys. And it's, I don't think people like people like to complain about, you know, this guy had a bad day and they should cut him. I don't think people really understand what that's like in that building, though. It's really hard on athletes. It's very hard. And listen, this is the high performance business. Like, the, there are no feelings involved. No. However, like, you know, again, I, I know I kind of referenced my book at the beginning where it's like I would make the I, I would make the contention that some of that stuff matters. Like uh, I it's funny, I've been doing a lot of research recently through through how important it is to to fire and let go people the right way. And I think this is like really overlooked in our society in general. Like we think, oh, well, like we've already made the determination that uh, Jonathan's not going to be a good salesperson here. So let's just cut him now and like get rid of him and, you know, like, get, like just make. But like how you do that is important. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm looking at specifically, you know, to take NFL headlines. You look at Bobby Wagner. Bobby Wagner, and, and I don't know if you followed the story, but like apparently he didn't find out that he was cut uh, until he either read it on Twitter or like his agent reached out to him and was like, have you been cut by the Seahawks? That happens and, all the time. That and, happens and, all. And Bobby Wagner was the face of the Seahawks for 10 years. Think, I mean, so think me, about that. So think about this. So that's not nobody. That's not Evan Burke, nobody kicker or whatever. Yeah. That's Bobby. Bobby Wagner will be in that ring of honor, if not have a statue in front of that stadium. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now you've got DK Metcalf in that building. Oh, and DK is going to be the next great thing. And, but like what you don't talk about or what nobody talks about is like DK has already come out and said like, man, I can't believe that like we got rid of Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner in the same day. These guys had such like an impact on me and blah, 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 blah. And like, He's not saying it, but he's also probably sitting there like, I can't believe these MFs like just cut this guy. He's the face of the franchise. He's the most impactful person in the building. And they didn't even call him to cut him. And like, yes, it's it's a cold business, but it doesn't have to be a cold business. Like you can show some humanity. You can show some connection and, and like just like show some – uh, just like a little bit of integrity. And so now DK Metcalf, who you're going to count on as being like the next big culture guy or whatever. Cause like, let me tell you, you don't want it to be Jamal Adams, uh, no. but like <laughs> you want DK to be your next big culture guy. And what is the story that is going to be told? And I think a lot of times people overlook the importance of stories, especially when building culture. Uh, so it's like, Yes, DK Metcalf is really important to the Seahawks culture because they can point at him and say, like, look, this was a, you know, second round draft pick. We developed him into like one of the top receivers of the game. Yeah, that story is important. But you also just created a story that literally, in a way, detracts severely from whatever culture that you've created or are trying to create. Because everybody's going to be like, oh, yeah, we'll do whatever you want to do, but like it ain't going to matter because even if you win them a Super Bowl and are a Super Bowl MVP, they're just going to cut your ass and not even tell you. Yeah. So it's and like, how simple would that have been just to make a phone call? Sorry. No, well, I was just going to say, and then you look at it from DK Metcalf's standpoint. I mean, here in Packerland, you know, we, a lot of fans want to trade for DK Metcalf, and he's been rumored that, you know, they're going to trade him because they might not extend him. So now you have Pete Carroll at the owners meeting saying like, no, we have no intentions, but if you're DK Metcalf, how can you believe that? Cause you just said the same thing about Russell Wilson and he's gone now. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a bad sign in the business, in the industry, when you make a decision to cut a guy like Bobby Wagner and the first text is out to Adam Schefter to break the story because, you know, a trade there's two, there's two teams involved. So you don't know where the leak came from. It could come out before you make that phone call. But when you're releasing a guy, you have the entire opportunity to reach out and say, hey, this is what's happening, just so you know you're probably going to see this on ESPN in 15 minutes. At least give that guy you know, the courtesy of that. But it happens all the time. Uh, yeah. Devontae Adams said he found out he was getting traded. I mean, he wasn't happy with the Packers, and he was happy, but he found out about the trade through Twitter. And it's such, uh, a, it's small, just, it's such a small thing, and I know it's a business. But, like, 
you can make, I guess you could sit here and make the argument of like, well, you know, who I'm just like making this up. Like, oh, Leighton Vander Esch, like if the Cowboys were to cut him, like, okay, he's been here for whatever, three or four years. But like, yeah, I could maybe just say, okay, yeah, what are you supposed to call every single person? Like we could make that argument, but like, that's Bobby Wagner. Yeah. That's different. That's a that's a culture maker on your team. And like I said, everybody's gonna know the story. So it's like was like what was so important, like you just said, is it more important to make sure Adam Schefter knows? Uh, because that has nothing to do with the culture within the building. Like letting him go the right way would have added to the culture. Nobody's pissed that they're moving on. That's that's part of the business. But what doesn't have to be part of the business is like, oh, yeah, you're out of here. So, like, we're not even going to tell you you're out of here. We're just, like, going to absolve our hand. Like, we're not even going to, like, mess with you ever again. Um, unfortunate. Yeah. Well, and you talk about, uh, you know, Vander Esch as an example. Think about how much you could do for your culture if you did reach out to those players first. And you treated the guy who's only with you for two or three seasons like he's been there for 10. I think – Recruiting free agents would be easier. Getting people to resign with your team would be easier. I mean, those little things, I think, just go a long, long way that maybe people don't recognize. Um, I, yeah, I hundred percent agree. I wrote a book on it. <laughs> well, check it out. Um, okay, we are. It's March thirtieth, so my world is all about attending pro days. The draft is less than a month away. I did want to pick your brain a little bit in the time that you were in Miami. What is it like right now to be a coach? Um, you would like to think the good teams have, you know, their front office and their coaching staff aligned with where they want to go in this draft class. I'd be curious, since you lived it, what is going on right now in team facilities on March 30th as they get ready for the draft? And that, that goes all the way down to your role as a special teams coach. I mean, what are, what are coaches doing right now? Not just head coaches, but what is the entire staff doing right now? Yeah, so here March 30th, you know, you're looking at it, and I apologize, I don't know the exact date of the draft, but let's just say it's a month away, right? It's Four April 28th, it's, yep. April 28th, okay, so probably for the last two weeks, and for, definitely for the next two, three weeks, those scouts, yes, they're going out to, like, pro days and, and, and kind of, like, I guess, concluding their evaluations, but they're setting the board. And so they're probably meeting seven days a week at this point, uh, on the pro personnel side from the GM on down to like the area scouts. And yeah, they send people to different places, uh, but they're meeting every single day and they're reorganizing the board and they're setting their board for the upcoming draft. And uh, the good teams, uh, somebody who I, I really feel passionate about is doing things the right way is, is Chris Ballard in Indianapolis. And look, any of these people we pick out, like we could probably have, have a 40 minute argument for or against it. But like, I think Chris Ballard is somebody who really looks deeply at character. It, it appears that way and they, they've talked about it as such. And so I think a lot of those conversations right now are around, okay, here's, here's how our board sits right now. I wanna know who's gonna fit our culture, who is gonna be the guy that can develop, who are the guys that we feel have tapped out their potential, who are the guys that are coachable these are the right type of conversations to be having right now. The wrong type of conversations are, uh, oh my God, Alex just ran a four, three, two at his pro day. 
he's not the 76th best receiver in the draft. He's the seventh best receiver in the draft. Uh, those are the wrong type of conversations. And yeah. as much as I'm trying to be funny, like you would be terrified at how often stuff like that happens. Oh, uh, Pickett. Pickett's hands are only eight inches and, you know, three three fifths of an inch. Like, how, da- how dare he? How dare he even show up at his pro day? And it's like, okay, like, I get it. You know, there's certain stats that like certain hand sizes, whatever, whatever. But like, did the what about the three years of film you've been watching for the last, you know, 24 months in prep for this moment? Like, is is one measurement going to make or break drop a guy from a first round quarterback to uh, like off your draft board? The things that you want to drop guys off the draft board are legit conversations like, um, you know, what is the, you know, what's his behavior history? Like, what's the family history? Like, do we think this person can be successful on our team? Can this person be successful in this environment? And I think like what it all comes down to and why I'm kind of like getting a little fired up right now, Alex is like, this is what I wrote my book about is like the teams that build based on character are typically the teams that win. And what it's all about, especially when we're talking NFL is like, when we hand this guy a $20 million contract or a $6 million contract, how is he going to react? Is he going to react thinking like, woohoo, I made it. Or does he sign that contract and think, okay, now I can get to work. Mm -hmm. And what you want is obviously fill your team with as many of the, of the second type of people as possible. Uh, Because what dictates success at that level is not your speed or your size or any of these other things that the, the TV, the, you know, ESPN or the, the, the television shows like to highlight. That's all great. It makes for good TV, but like, why are people successful at that level? It's typically because like they can deal with failure. They can get better in failure. Uh, they like have this extreme passion and desire to be great. They're awesome teammates. These are the things that like really dictate who the best people are to like be on your team. And, and like the people it's, it's really what separates average players from good players. And like what allows a good player to become a great player. Uh, And so like, that's ideally the conversations that are happening on the pro personnel side for coaches. Sometimes they're sending them out and like, like going to these pro days and looking at a certain position specific to what they coach. Uh, There's also a lot in this period of time in the off season, there's also a lot of like uh, self scout. So you're watching your own film from the past season and you're kind of deciding like, Hey, like, what are we doing? What are our weak areas? What are, what are our strengths? What do we need to double down on? How is this special teams unit going to change now that we're going to lose this potential starter on all six of our special teams? Oh, this linebacker is going to be elevated to a starter. So we're not going to be able to put him on all these special teams. So now like, who are we going to start looking at to replace him? Uh, And then also like, what are the new things that are going on? Like, Bill Belichick is really great at this. Um, And Michael Lombardi talks about it in his book, Gridiron Genius, where he talking about, I think in 2016, they won the championship. They won the Super Bowl or 2014. And uh, Belichick commissioned Lombardi to do a study on what all of the teams that were were doing it well, what all the well-run organizations are doing. 
So, like, the great teams, regardless of whether they win the championship or get knocked out in the first round or don't even make the playoffs, are constantly trying to evolve and look at what other people are doing. And I even talk about this a little bit in the book where it's like you have to be aware all the time of, like, what dictates success within your competitive realm. If you're a basketball GM, and I'm, I'm going to pivot to the NBA just for a quick minute. Like, if you're a basketball GM in 2012, 2013, 2014, and you don't see, like, the evolution of, like, more teams taking three-pointers, the teams that have the highest three-point percentage making the playoffs more often than not, and then the explosion of the scene, on the scene that the Warriors and Steph Curry were – and you're still back here trying to like win games like it's 1990, like you're at a severe disadvantage probably mm -hmm. by years. So you have to also be analyzing like who are the teams that are winning and like how can we update our approach to like match that? And is this like an evolution in the game or is this just like a blip on the radar? Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning a ton of different things, but I think it's a lot of like, obviously for some people they're looking forward, they're f trying to find the new players to bring onto the team. They're having the right discussions, hopefully around character and the type of traits that are going to lead to those people having success. And then a lot of the coaches, in addition to helping out on the scouting side, they're also kind of doing a self-evaluation and they're also kind of looking for new ways to expand and evolve, uh, their side of the ball or, or their position. Um, Fantastic insight. You know, the, the combine and pro days is such a catch 22 in my world. I think the combine and pro days are one of the stupidest things that is done in sports. Like, uh, you know, how a guy runs 40 yards in a straight line has any impact on the last three years of film. It's still like Kyle Hamilton's a perfect example. Like top five pick, most likely he runs a four, seven and now every, and I know the teams aren't doing this, but everybody in the media is like, Oh, Yee. like that guy's slow and it's just like so one time that he ran in a perfectly straight line it was not as fast as you expected it to be so now the guy can't play football like what are we what are we doing here but at the same time like i have to play that game like as an agent and players on their own you spend a ton of money for eight weeks of training because it is it's teams do value it and if you're outside certain ranges you, you get cut. I think Michael Lombardi, I listened to your interview with him and it goes to character as well. He talked about like looking at it, like almost like an FBI profiler in the draft. And all you're doing is you have a list of 500 guys and all you're doing is filtering through. Okay. This guy can't make it because his 40 times not in, or his arms are too short or like, he's just like filtering it down. And I think character is a good piece of that too. And I always tell my guys, especially they're going to be late round draft picks, undrafted free agents, like, you can't afford to have character flaws because if you're just a guy they're going to invite to camp, they don't want to invite a pain in the ass to camp and you won't make it. So, you know, keep your head down, work hard. Yes, sir. No, sir. You know, all that stuff. Uh, cause they're just filtering through. And so I'm, I'm torn the combine. I got to play the game. I get it, but it's also, I think really stupid. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's fascinating because I, we're kind of, we're, we're both straddling the same line, but we kind of exist or existed in like separate uh, pieces of this. I'm talking about like, oh yeah, don't pay attention to that. And you're talking about like, oh, hey, like, no, pay attention to this. Like if it's good. Um, and I think that I, I talk about it in my book uh, from a team's perspective, ignore the unimportance. Uh, and like, this is kind of what we're discussing where there's a lot of things that really aren't important 
that we build up in the media or certain people get influenced a certain way that, that don't dictate success. I mean, Cooper Cup's the best example, like can't run in a straight line. And I think he, he had a great interview with Peter King at the end of the season. And they were like, oh, why were you overlooked? He's like, because I ran a 4-6-6-40. And he went to an FCS school. And he went to an FCS school. So, like, not only did he dominate his competition, but he dominated every time they played up, every time they played UW or Washington State. He, like, had 200 yards, two touches, 10 catches. So he's dominating when he does play the higher level. He's dominating at his level. Uh, He has amazing breakaway like he has amazing ability to separate from defenders he has great quickness he's really great at running routes and he has amazing like catching ability but what does the like quote-unquote media look at we look at the speed we mm-hmm. look at like the size and so like if you're not six four and you don't run four four like oh like how could you even think about playing and the reality is very few players run faster than a 4440 and the 4440 doesn't mean anything um you know uh, in coaching we used to talk all the time that like yeah like he's not going to run the 40 fast but like when he's in pads and he's running down the field ain't nobody catching him so uh yeah ignoring the unimportance was was like a big thing in my book that i talked about and and cooper cup was the example that i kind of illustrated and i think kind of makes our point that we're making here yeah well cooper cup Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins, who you could make the argument are the top three wide receivers in the NFL. Not one of them ran faster than 4'6". Yeah, because it doesn't um, matter. It doesn't. <laughs> but at the same time, to like, and this is why I'm torn, if any one of those guys would have ran a 4'8", none of them would be in the league. So like, I right. think teams do have a range. Like, You do have to meet certain metrics, and all teams are trying to do what the combine is, okay, do you look as fast as you look on film? And if you don't, maybe they go back and rewatch your film. Um, but I, 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 oh, sorry. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, I'm kind of like just wondering aloud, but I wonder if like the, the combine and all these pro days are actually like detrimental from a, from a team's perspective of getting the people that actually are the best football players. I, uh, I think you have to be extremely, and I've never been on the team side, but I think the teams that draft the best have to be extremely disciplined. You have to trust yeah. your scouts and your your process up till February. You have to trust what you saw. And now all you're doing is looking at a workout to verify what you saw. I think the teams that get into trouble, they fall, like you mentioned, they fall in love with the workout. This guy's 225 pounds and he can run a 4-2-5-40. Okay, that's great, but you know, the guy, he can't catch or he, he, his routes aren't precise or, you know, whatever it might be. Those are the teams that end up, I think, getting in trouble. You have to, again, never, never having been on that side, but you got to be disciplined about it. I think. Uh, Tom Moore, the offensive guru that's worked with Peyton Manning and, and obviously now behind the scenes, I think he's a senior consultant uh, with the Buccaneers. Um, one of the greatest offensive minds in, in modern NFL they were drafting receivers for the Colts. He was a, a coach on the Colts. And uh, Peyton Manning is obviously entering his prime, and they're looking at a receiver to draft for him. And they go, okay, we're going to draft this guy. He runs a 4-3, whatever, whatever, whatever. And they're like, but yeah, but this guy doesn't catch. And they're like, oh, what? Like, but we can teach him how to catch. But like, you can't teach the speed 
And like they're having this argument and Tom Moore like kind of like interjects into this conversation and goes, guys, we have the greatest prospect at quarterback in the history of modern NFL. We are not going to give him players that can't catch the ball. And he's 100% right. Like Mm -hmm. that team is going to have success. The only thing you have to do is not screw it up. Don't give him a 4-3 player because you're going to have like – uh, trust me, I've seen it with the Cowboys who are the team I've rooted for my whole life. And and guys like, you know, and I don't want to put anybody on blast, but like a Darius Hayward Bay, who's like, he's all speed. But it's like, yeah, but like he didn't produce in college. He can't catch the ball. He doesn't do the things a receiver needs to do. And it's very easy to be enchanted by these unimportant things when, when you know, if you're going to play receiver, catching the ball should be <laughs> probably at the top of your list in terms of your evaluation. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we could, could talk about we, this all day, Alex. I was going to say we could because, you know, I, I just you mentioned the Cowboys and they've been linked to Traylon Burks, wide receiver out of Arkansas. It's the same thing. He ran a 4 5 5, which is average NFL speed, which is good. And he got crucified for, you know, quote unquote, having a bad workout. It's like, well, go back and watch the film. Like the kid can play. Um, anyway. All right. So um, I do want to talk about special teams and then we'll maybe wrap up your we'll hit on the college coaching real quick and, and then your transition out of football. Um, but as a special teams coordinator, you mentioned it briefly. You said, you know, we know this linebacker is no longer going to be, you know, he's going to be a starter. So he's not going to be on special teams. I do want to get your sense. So like as, okay, now the draft happens, you have rookie mini camps and you get into training camp. Most of the guys you're now going to be in charge of coaching were stars at college. They were wide receivers. They were tight ends. They were linebackers, DBs. And now they're in a role that they're probably not used to. What does that transition look like? And what was it like as a coach who, I, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like most of the guys you were probably coaching wished they weren't on your unit. So what does that look like? How do you create success around somewhat i don't want to call it an afterthought because the good teams specialize in special teams but almost an afterthought in special teams how does that how's that whole thing come together there's a couple aspects that that come to mind so first of all a lot of this is driven by the head coach and the importance that they put on and we'll just take special teams specifically like the importance that they put on special teams i've worked for certain coaches that literally don't care about special teams, literally like trying in that period before it's supposed to be over in practice. Cause they want to get back on the, on the field and throw more, throw more balls or whatever. Uh, and like, okay, yeah, you can win games. You can have awesome stats, but like, you're never going to win a championship. You're never going to reach your potential as a team. if That's how you treat a crucial aspect of the game. Uh, so it, a lot of this is driven by coaches, number one, or the, the head coaches and the leaders. Uh, the second thing that comes to mind is like you have to create buy-in. And so that buy-in comes from the leadership, right? Like if they see that the head coach values special teams and there's different ways you can value this, but like specifically focusing on it when you're talking to the team and, and putting uh, like an, uh, an intense focus on it in team meetings and making sure that people are all bought in to like, this being an important part to what we do. Uh, And uh, I'm not trying to just like continuously mention my book, but like you are mentioning things that are like very integral to my book, which is like, who's more likely to buy in to the team concept? Is it going to be somebody that has a ton of talent, but not a lot of character? 
Or is it going to be somebody who, yeah, regardless of what their talent level is, but like they're a, a huge character person and like they want to sacrifice for the common good of like what's best for the team. And and I'm being very general here and like using both ends of the spectrum, but like the people that are more likely to buy in to that concept are going to be the people that are high character. And and specifically in my book, I talk about three aspects, mindset, heart, and team players. And like the people that understand that team success is a prerequisite to individual success are the kind of guys that you're looking for. There's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be people like Antonio Brown, where it's like, hey, Antonio, we need you to run down this punt. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, Jack, I ain't doing that. I don't mm-hmm. do that. Like, like, <laughs> I'm not even showing up to your meeting. And like, you know, okay, fine. Uh, but there's a lot of coaches that wouldn't put up with that. And uh, I, I think that, that it all starts at the top. And so you need to like make sure that people are bought in. Now, if you have a coach that's not really invested in it and is just kind of like not involved, not in the room when the special teams meeting is going on, the players know that. Yeah. So like simple things like a coach sitting in the front of the room and injecting himself during the special teams meetings, that is a subtle signal to everybody in that room that this is important and you need to pay attention. The coaches that as soon as the special teams meeting starts, they walk out the door. Uh, that's also a huge signal to like, woo, okay. Yeah. Now I can like get on my phone or fart around or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's a signal to everybody in the room. So, you know, Bill Belichick, obviously, history as a special teams coordinator and that's very important in new england like they place a lot of emphasis on that and like they've developed a lot of young players who have gotten their start on special teams and so like taking great pride in that unit and making it important from a team perspective and from a coaching staff perspective cascades down to the players and they know when it's important and they also know when it's not really important when they're you're just checking boxes um, and they can feel that and players are a lot more intuitive or instinctive than I think a lot of coaches give them credit for. Um, and, and again, all of that stuff matters, even if it's unsaid or very subtle. Uh, and like I, like I was alluding to the, the type of people that you get on your team and like, you know, this in the evaluation process, like, are they a team player? Well, listen, there's obviously different levels to this. If we're drafting Micah Parsons, top 10, top 11, whatever he was like, we're not drafting Micah Parsons to develop and like help on special, like help on special teams. Like he's there to be a impact player. So like, it's unfair, especially at the pro ranks to be like, Oh, well you need to do this because that's part of our team concept. It's kind of known that like, well, we don't want to get him hurt running down on kickoff. Like he's the game changer. Okay. But there's a lot of teams that like require every starter to be on a special teams. And like, those are usually like the most outstanding special teams units in the league because everybody has a role and they accept that role. And Antonio Brown's not going to do that. So like, what is the sacrifice you're making for your team culture by acquiring a super high talented guy? But like you could get a guy that's not as fast, is not as much of a difference maker, but is going to show up every day. And like, look, like that's part of the decision making process. Like you were mentioning it earlier, and I, I was going to say, like the higher the talent, the higher the tolerance. 
and that's the reality of the situation. But like, I think you see time and time again that like that's not those aren't the teams that win. The teams yeah. that make all of these like let's just call them like rolls of the dice on character players, like they don't win. Um, the teams that win are the teams that like have these like ingrained cultures where it's like, oh, this is important to us. Uh, and then they have people and, you know, New England's like one of my favorite teams to study and cite. But it's like the moment that uh, Bill Belichick goes into uh, New England, it's like, OK, nothing else matters. The only thing that matters is getting Willie McGinnis to buy in to what I'm trying to sell to into my culture, because doesn't matter who your players are, or who your quarterback is, or what what scheme you run. If Willie McGinnis isn't bought in, and that's not, I'm not saying that specific. Like Willie McGinnis would have been a problem. That's specific to any team. If your yeah. best player is not bought into what you're doing, then you have no chance. Uh, I, I'm here in Dallas. I love the Dallas Mavericks. Luka Doncic is my new favorite athlete. Of course, he's going to be amazing, and he is amazing. And, like, the Mavericks right now are the best league after the last two years being, like, the best offensive team in the history of the league. Okay, like, yeah, they don't have a championship to show for it and all this stuff, but, like, the interesting evolution of, like, Jason Kidd becoming the head coach and, like, prioritizing defense doesn't matter unless Luka is like, oh, yeah, I want to be a great defensive team too. Yeah, I don't care about points and stats and, like, offense. Like, let's let's win. And so, like, if if you don't have a player like that, you're not you have no chance. You're not going to be a great defensive team. And you know, Jason Kidd was talking the other night about how you know, oh, you're awesome, Coach Kidd. And he was like, look, like I talk about all this stuff, but this is all player led. Our culture is player led, and I think that's always important to note, especially at the highest levels, like whether it's NBA or NFL or you know, elite college athletics like your best player has to be bought into what you're doing or else that person, he or she could undermine everything you're trying to do. Um, Cause all it takes is just like one Antonio Brown to just be like, man, I ain't doing that. And then like, okay, now you've got a real crisis of leadership. Now my best player doesn't want to do what I'm trying to build here. Yeah. Well, and, and then it's easy when things are going well, but the first sight of adversity is when that crack will happen. I mean, I think about, you know, here in the Packers, one, we had a terrible special teams unit, and two, you know, all the offseason stuff with Aaron Rodgers last year, and, you know, they may have buried that hatchet. He's, you know, signed an extension. But, like, last year, how does that – like, how is that marriage going to work when there's at least a rift between the top of the organization and your quarterback? It might not have been the coach, but it's just, you know, I, that's, I think that's huge to get that buy-in. I don't want to hit on a sore subject here, Alex, but like there is a certain level of talent that can get you really, really far. Right. Yeah. And like, I think we all, I mean, I've been on a lot of podcasts over the last two years, especially like all focused on the NFL. And I've widely been saying, I think Aaron Rodgers is playing the quarterback position better than anybody has ever played the position ever before the last two years i'm confident i don't think like, i don't think we'll ever see another arm like his. his 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 talent his pure talent is unmatched exactly and you know it's interesting i've watched a lot of san francisco at the end of the season and like i'm i'm fascinated by kyle shanahan and the the program they're building and i'm, I'm a huge jimmy garoppolo fan but like obviously i watched that last game against the rams and it's like they were just at like you want to talk about tough and there's a lot of fake tough teams and I'm not trying to put 
Green Bay or Dallas on on the spot here, but like there's a lot of teams that love to talk tough that aren't tough. And then there are teams that are tough. Yeah. And like San Francisco has it built in their culture. Uh, and like you can have a ton of talent, but the moment you play, uh, and I'm, I'm using bully, bully's not really a great word, but like the moment you play the team that is really about that, really about that life, now you start to see that talent has very little to do with it. Because there's no doubt Green Bay was the best team in the playoffs last year. No doubt. Yeah. They had the best player. They had the best receiver. Uh, everything was lined up for them. They had home field advantage. They're playing in the cold. Uh, and, like, I don't want to even get into the semantics of, like, oh, well, is it really that much of an advantage? Like, the bottom line is they were the more talented team. But the more talented team doesn't always win. Like, talent is essential to success, but success is not determined by talent. It's well, determined by character. And they held the 49ers. I'm reliving bad memories here, but they lived, they, 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 they held the 49ers to zero offensive touchdowns and still lost. So I think it's right. I think you're right on. I think it's toughness. You know, you mentioned talent can get you so far. Right now, it seems to be talent can get you to the championship, the NFC championship game. And they haven't broken through since 2011. And, you know, I think that's how far elite talent can get you. But that after yeah. that, you got to have character. You got to have. And I like what Lafleur is doing. I think he's a great coach, and you know I don't want to rip on him, but it's. I think there's more to it, and you know the Adams departure showed even more that you know it's not as great as maybe it seems. So I think they got some things to figure out. But okay, um, after your time in Miami, you made a couple more stops, um, highlighted I think personally by your time at UCLA, where you're the quarterbacks coach. You had a chance to coach Brett Hundley, Packer. Uh, Josh Rosen, who was the number one pick in the league, you know, in five minutes or so, what was your, what was your transition out of the NFL back into the college like? Um, and then maybe you can even go into why you decided to get out of football. So what was, what was the second half of your coaching career like? Yeah. So I, I coached at McMurray university, uh, in, in here in Texas, uh, at the time, they were a Division three school transitioning to a Division two school. Uh, Hal Mummy was the head coach there, and for any you know college football fans, he's kind of the godfather of the air raid offense. Uh, this offense that has really been kind of popu popularized by Mike Leach and Cliff Kingsbury and a number of other coaches, uh, and, and has had a huge influence over the last 30 years of coaching. So it really unique in the sense that I got to learn under June Jones, also very unique in terms of the passing style of, of offenses in the NFL and in the, and in college. And then also work with Hal mummy, uh, who also had a huge impact. So really interesting experiences. Um, and, and I spent three years in Abilene before getting an opportunity to go coach at UCLA with the quarterbacks, like you mentioned. Uh, and, and that was really special and, you know, was fortunate at my time at McMurray. And <clears throat> as much as I'm sitting here and I'm talking about character, like I coached some really, really talented players at McMurray. And I was fortunate to coach three All-American wide receivers in three years there. And, uh, like, you know, it makes me look like a great coach when you have <laughs> great players. And, like, that's the, rea that's the reality of, uh, of coaching. Like, there are no Hall of Fame coaches in the Hall of Fame that didn't coach Hall of Fame players. And Absolutely. that's the truth. Uh, and, and so I was really fortunate in that experience and obviously the opportunity to go to not only a, a school like UCLA, but living in Los Angeles and, and like you mentioned, working specifically with quarterbacks and, and working with some of the top quarterbacks in college football over the last decade was really special. 
Um, and I think, you know, even going, there was a huge difference even from UCLA and the level that they're at from where SMU was, right? Like you're talking really about two different worlds when you're talking about like high level power five college football schools and, you know, a, a, whatever they call it now, group of five uh, division one school. And that was really, really cool for me. And, you know, got to work with a lot of great coaches, a lot of coaches that I learned a ton from, uh, uh, you know, personally and, and a lot, a lot of coaches that had an influence on my book specific to like the same way I thought about talent acquisition and, and just learning from great coaches there. Uh, you, you mentioned the quarterbacks and, uh, you know, Brett Hundley was one of the best college quarterbacks, uh, yeah. I think of the last, you know, I say decade, but I mean, if you're really, if you really want to kind of like start nitpicking, you could go back maybe 20 years and Brett Hundley was an incredibly, uh, proficient and productive quarterback, uh, especially at UCLA, which honestly UCLA hadn't really seen a lot of success. And I was fortunate to be there during a year, uh, two years where we had a, a great deal of success. And I was there during Brett Hundley's, uh, I believe it was his redshirt junior year. It was his third year playing. Uh, and he left to go to the draft. And that year we were 10 and I think we were 10 and three or 11 and three. We won the uh, Alamo bowl. We finished the, the season in the top 10. Uh, it was the only time uh, UCLA's finished in the top 10 uh, in the last 25 years or so. So it was a really cool time to be there, to have a ton of success to, I mean, I'll just tell you personally, Alex, like the, coaching in the Rose bowl, I had always kind of like seen as kind of like this Mecca or this like North star that I wanted to like drive towards and like coach at the Rose bowl. And, and then for that to be kind of the home stadium in my coaching career for two years was like, it was unbelievable. And it's like the most beautiful venue in college football. And it's, it's truly amazing. Um, uh, the, the field and the whole atmosphere around it, uh, and like, you know, obviously living in LA is like a whole, we'll do that on another <laughs> podcast, but, uh, you know, Brett was not only really great in the offense, but like he, you know, had a ton of confidence in his own abilities. And, you know, I have a firm belief that, you know, you need, especially in college football specifically, like you need to have a good deal of ability to make great throws, but you also need to have a good ability to make plays with your feet. And I think like, toughness to like sit in the pocket and make big plays and um he he had a really unique ability to do a lot of those things um yeah multiple talent and uh you know like you mentioned draft uh, was he drafted by the packers i believe he was a fifth round yep, pick and by the packers. like the fourth or fifth round yep yeah and like you know interesting too because like he started a couple of games in the league and he's played pretty well i think he i can't remember when it was it was like a second or third year but he started a game when rogers was out or being rested and he threw for like 317 yards or something you know he had like a a really big game um, yeah he he's got, a he lot got of he got put in a bad situation because he was behind rogers and packer fans have been spoiled the last 30 years we've had brett Favre and aaron <laughs> Rodgers. we've had two quarterbacks uh so i think there was the it was it might have been the year aaron broke his collarbone wasn't he, he out missed, for like he missed four or seven games. weeks or something and i remember Hundley started like four games and when you're comparing yourself to a future hall of famer like the drop-off is noticeable 
And and then I think I think Hunley got hurt because I remember like Seneca Wallace started a game or two, and mm, it was okay. it was kind of a dark period in Packers history for that eight nine week stretch. Um, and then I think I think Brett Hunley I think he went on to play for the Colts for another couple of years, or, or I'm, I might be remembering that wrong. I think he was a backup for another year or two somewhere he else. Was, and he was with the Colts. I think he also played a little bit with the Car- Cardinals right now. I, I apologize. Still in the I'm league. Sure. Play, yeah, played played for Seattle. I think he was a backup for the Cardinals last year. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you know, you know, it's interesting because like you're dealing with uh, even though it's it's still competitive, it's still kind of like the highest levels of college football. Like, you know, there's still a lot of difference between the quarterbacks that you're dealing with in the room at UCLA and at SMU. Now that gap has probably severely um, dwindled, but like at the time. It was a big gap. And then, as you mentioned, Josh Rosen came in the next year. And, uh, you know, Josh was one of the most highly touted high school players in the nation and uh, extremely impressive from a multiple from multiple aspects, both his intelligence of the game. uh, Like, I, I don't know. Josh is Josh is a big dude, even though he doesn't look, quote unquote, look it right like. You know, he is a solid uh, 6'4", 210 pounds. Tall. Um, again, like also very underrated in terms of making plays with his feet. Um, fundamentally, probably, I, I, you know, I don't want to just like get caught up in hyperbole here, but like Josh was probably like one of the most fundamentally sound quarterbacks I ever worked with. I mean, he was definitely the most talented quarterback I ever worked with um even like you know chad pennington and chad henney uh you know who i saw firsthand when i was in miami like i you know even like in josh's freshman year i was like oh josh is better than those guys talent wise um like it was it was noticeable and even like you know listen brett was great and brett was a great fit for our system but like the differences between brett and josh are great um now like it a lot of this goes back to like, what is like when we define best, what does best mean is best team. Mm. Is it the best teammate? Is it the best talent? Is it the best thrower of the football? There's all these different things, right? Cause like in the system that we ran under offensive coordinator, Noel Mazzoni, you can make the argument that like, there is no better fit than Brett Hundley. Um, like he was aw- like, I mean, Brett was so dynamic that year in 2014. It was, it's, uh, you know, again, you were talking about being spoiled. We were spoiled that year. Like he made so many plays, kept us and, and helped us win so many games. Uh, and Josh, uh, in, in like a different, like he's not a great fit for Noel's system, but like his talent is immense. Uh, and like one of the things I loved about Josh, uh, in addition to like his knowledge of the game, uh, Josh, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this, but like he is an extremely tough person and like, you know, physical toughness is tough to like measure obviously. Uh, but like one of the common themes you see in a lot of quarterbacks is like the ability to stand in the pocket under pressure and deliver the ball in crucial situations of the game. Uh, and I thought that Josh was excellent at that and probably the most underrated aspect of his game. Um, so, and, you know, obviously his arm talent speaks for itself. Uh, so, I mean, amazing for me to kind of at that point in time, kind of work with those people. And as you mentioned, like you could make the argument like, oh, wow, Evan, like you, you're 
at the pinnacle of college football, you live in Santa Monica, like everything is amazing. And like your career is just about to like explode and take off from here. And, uh, like, I, I think I had like a moment where I was kind of looking down the road the next 30 years and, you know, coaching is not a stable profession. And, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, some of the things we had talked about early on in our convo and, just like I just didn't feel like that was me for the next 30 years I just had like a moment where I was like oh now I don't want to be the head coach for the Dallas Cowboys anymore now like I don't even want to do this uh and and so it was like very profound very quick and it happened all of a sudden and um you know I made the decision basically going into the last one or two games of the 2015 season that like, Oh, I, I, I think I'm done. Like, I think I want to walk away. And I just like felt like I, there was more out there. I just felt like there was more out there to life. I felt that there was more out there that I could give in terms of like the impact I can make. Uh, and like, I, I had to have a little bit of self-awareness too, that like, Oh, I'm not happy. Like I'm not fulfilled. Um, like this never, if I'm not happy now living in Santa Monica, working at like, honestly, one of the best institutions in America, when do I get happy in 12 years when I become the head coach at Colorado, <laughs> like hopefully like, okay, so now I'm postponing my happiness until then. And I, you know, at the time, like entering my mid thirties, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live my life like that. I know, like I'm. I know that there's more out there for me and, and more impact that I can make. And it, and even though I'm doing a lot of the similar things, it's, it's just not on the football field anymore. So um, what are you up to now? What are you doing? Um, how can the audience find you? All those kind of good questions. What's, what's Evan been up to since you stepped away from football? Yeah. So, um, you know, working as a speaker and as a consultant and, uh, you know, as I mentioned recently as an author, uh, writing my first book on, on team building and, and uh, the evaluation process, finding intangibles, that book can be found on Amazon. Uh, so, you know, you can go search my name, uh, Evan Burke, or finding intangibles and, and find that book. Um, and, you know, I, I speak and work with a lot of performance driven teams, uh, motivating teams, talking about leadership and, uh, you know, really just kind of like talking about performing at our highest level. And, and, you know, you mentioned earlier my podcast, my podcast uh, is called The Highest Level and really kind of explores uh, the intersection of sports and leadership. So everything I kind of do is, is around that intersection of sports and leadership and peak performance. Um, and uh, so obviously right now, um, a lot of the focus is my book and, and sharing my message with the book and, and speaking to, to companies. And so if there's any uh, leaders or, or people that work with performance driven teams that that might find benefit from, uh, you know, not only an inspiring message, but hopefully an interesting one with, a, you know, a little bit of a pro sports angle. Uh, to, to things, um, you know, please reach out to me and I can be found on social media at Coach Evan Burke, uh, any social media channel. That's that's my name at Coach Evan Burke. Burke is spelled B-U-R-K. Uh, or you can reach me on my website, www.coachevanburke.com. Yeah. And check out his podcast, because like I said, I checked out a couple episodes as I was preparing for this and the Michael Lombardi, anyone who's interested in the NFL, I thought that was a fantastic interview. Um, 
Michael's had a ton of experience in the NFL. His book is great. I listened to it. I listened to it. I got to admit, I, I cheated on that when I listened to it. Um, but that's fantastic. His experience with Bill Belichick and all the other organizations was great. And I found value out of it as an agent. What are, cause he, he goes into some depth. I know, I know you guys were talking more about building teams, but you know, how did, how does a big board work? What are the, what are the good teams doing? I think if you're interested in the inner workings, that interview you did with him was fantastic. Um, so check it out. Evan, before we kind of wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like the audience to know or any questions for me? Wow. Uh, you know, we covered so much. Uh, <laughs> I don't did. know we if did. I have too much to add. There's a, there's a lot of me in this podcast. but uh, Which is good. It's supposed I, to be about you. I, I really enjoyed talking with you, and I, and I appreciate your shout-out. Um, that Michael Lombardi podcast was something I'm really proud of. And, it was great. Um, you know, somebody somebody I really look up to, so I, I appreciate you acknowledging that. And, um, no, I, I think I've said quite enough here today, and um, I just appreciate uh, the opportunity to come share with you and, and, and looking forward to learning more about your journey, too. So make sure you send me that sub Substack link or, or promote it right now if you need to. Yeah. Um, yeah. For those of you listening, check me out at Twitter, Impact Sports Management, Instagram, Impact, Impact Sports underscore football, Substack. If you just search Impact Sports newsletter, that should pop up. Um, so thank everyone for listening. Evan, thank you so much for joining. I had a fantastic conversation. Um, I'll be sure to check out your book. I'll put a link to your social media and 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 the book on Amazon right in the show description. So uh, this was great. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Alex. Love, 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 love.